You're listening to What Mad Universe on the HyperX Podcast Network. Check out all our shows on podcast.hyperx.com. Content warning. War, cannibalism, eugenics, racial weirdness, rape, and wacky tobacco. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying canopy of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. Christopher Wren's great church dome shattered, a wide boulevard littered with human corpses plundered of their weapons, massive metal constructs bristling with cannon and apparently at one time propelled by wheels, inside belts of iron now butted against each other in frozen combat leaking greasy smoke from their hatches. Traces of a yellowish gas clinging to the lowest points of a street, at the first sickly sweet scent of which Tafe turned and ran while I coughed and stumbled after. Thus we made our way across the city. Scrambling, hiding, running, with Tafe leading in her cautious semi-crouch, rifle poised, and I following, dazed by the wreckage. I came out of my sinking stupor once while we were taking momentary refuge in a gutted cathedral. The great bells had fallen when the supporting timbers had burned away, and now lay on the sides of the charred pews and altar. One side of the chapel, I discovered, had been converted by the Morlocks into a temporary butcher shop for their ravaging troops. In the dark, the vague outlines could be seen of the half-stripped carcasses hanging from the hooks in this grisly abattoir, swaying and turning over scattered rib cages and spines. I found myself staring at a kettle of rendered fat and suppressing a scream. Suddenly, the church itself began to scream, then tilted, and went darker than the dark that had filled it before. Tafe slapped me back into consciousness. The nightmare wasn't over yet. She pulled me to my feet, then led me to the now-empty street outside. Such was the upshot of one man's ambition to travel through time. A man in whose very parlor I had supped at the beginning of this long, dark night, and now whose very memory I cursed in my heart. A time machine that had become a bridge for these monsters, our children, to swarm across from millions of years into the future and overwhelm us. In the silenced, blood-spattered face of every brave man I examined was the same question that I read in my own heart. What evil design of providence could have had thus doubled creation upon itself, like a snake devouring its own tail? Welcome to What Mad Universe, uh, the show about pulp and the origins of sci-fi and genre writing. Um, We are looking today at, uh, we're continuing our series on the potential origins of steampunk with uh, yet another book that uh, possibly uh, bears the name. Uh, and in fact, this does seem to be the actual origin point for steampunk. Uh, Morlock Knight by K.W. Jeter, published in 1979. 
and we'll be looking at it in one minute. We'll be right back. What's that? Majestically cresting the horizon as it makes its way into port. Why, it's the brand new HyperX Armada monitors, mounts, and arms. Both the HyperX Armada 25 and 27 gaming monitors come bundled with a sturdy HyperX Armada mount and arm. If you need every split second of advantage with gaming, the full HD Armada 25 and its 240Hz refresh rate are for you. If you like to soak in the graphical majesty of your gaming, you'll be eyeing the Quad HD Armada 27 with an 165Hz refresh rate. Set sail for HyperX.com or Amazon.com to start making your display Armada. Explode When Defeated presents something really neat and full of meat. Those children aren't going to protect themselves in a brand new podcast series about everyone's favorite giant reptile. Godzilla? No, we already did that one. Rodan? No, uh, we did that one too. Gorgo? Gamera. We're talking about Gamera. From turtles to medieval samurai golems on our new series, Demolition Die. Only on the HyperX Podcast Network. Welcome back. I'm Adam Prosser. And I'm Philip Rice. Yes. Uh, and uh, yeah, so we've been doing uh, a series this uh, season on uh, the origins of steampunk and cyberpunk, uh, which are slightly connected in that they both have William Gibson behind them, and uh, obviously steampunk gets its name because cyberpunk uh, existed. Even though steampunk is strictly speaking the older genre again as we've as we've gone over in a couple of these episodes it, it's all a bit fuzzy uh you know cyberpunk probably predates neuromancer but it's usually you can pin it pretty uh clearly to neuromancer and then retroactively people started saying uh that you know steampunk was steampunk because they had the word cyberpunk um and and william gibson wrote, co-wrote a uh, um a cyberpunk a steampunk novel as we discussed uh, which was the difference engine. But as we said as well, uh, there were books before that that are clearly steampunk and were retroactively called steampunk. Uh, and this was, uh, there were three uh, writers, Tim Powers. Uh, um, oh, Blaylock. Uh, Blaylock, yeah, that's the other name. James P. Blaylock. James P. Blaylock, okay. yes. And Homunculus came a lot later and was just, it was part of the same trend, but uh, there's no, uh, it, it's not really, uh, it, it, to me it doesn't feel as necessary as these other two. Uh, even Powers I kind of, I read just because uh, I had gotten the impression he was the first, but uh, apparently I was wrong. Apparently uh, K.W. Jeter uh, wrote Morlock Knight. And then he, K, Jeter also wrote The differ, uh, the uh, Infernal Devices, uh, like a, about a decade later, uh, which is also pretty clearly steampunk. But Morlock Knight is the first one. It was written in 1979. Uh, uh, it's the first one to be called steampunk. Like, right. uh, um, will be this will be a future episode. But I've read the um, uh, Nomad of the Time Streams by uh, Michael Moorcock, and like it's before it's like ten years before the phrase was was uh, created. But it's it's steampunk in every respect, other than that. Right. Yeah. We're 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 going to do that in the next uh, next episode. Actually, we're going to look at uh, the Nomad of the Time Streams. And what year was that Nomad of the Time Streams? Uh, it was the first one was uh, seventy one, I believe. Right. So that's before this is uh, Morlock Knight is seventy nine. Um, but yeah. yes, it was. It, it sounds like basically uh, Jeter Powers and Blaylock wrote their books, and then after Cyberpunk came along, they sort of retroactively suggested, "Oh yeah, our books are steampunk." Because cyberpunk was big, essentially, but that was that that was uh, apparently eighty seven 
that they use the word, which is almost a decade after this book was written. So it was retroactively applied uh, to that to to these books. And as you say, they weren't really the first, but it was pivotal in the sense that it's the one that people pointed to and say that's steampunk, basically. Um, and the plot concerns um, a uh, the it's it's a sequel to uh, the Time Machine uh, by H.G. Wells, uh, in which um, uh, it turns out the Morlocks basically the guy the the unnamed time traveler goes back to the far future, uh, at which point the Morlocks manage to overwhelm them because it turns out the Morlocks are actually smarter than he thought, or rather there is a a more intelligent class uh, of Morlock. Uh, who are able to marshal them into an army. Uh, they use the time machine to go back and to 1892 and uh, start building an invasion force, which eventually succeeds. And in doing so, apparently destroys all of time itself. Uh, so it's pretty apocalyptic. Um, and the only hope is the reincarnation of King Arthur, <laughs> apparently, um, which is a bit of a left field swerve to the story. Um, but you had, I, I, I only discovered this when you uh, put it in our notes, that um, apparently this was planned to be part of a series? Uh, yes, um, th this was uh, talked about in the intro to the version of the book I had. Um, it was um, uh, a series proposed by the publisher of um, uh, reincarnations of uh, King Arthur in various time periods. Um, and uh, so they were. Uh, all these writers got together and sort of picked out the, what time periods they wanted to cover. And um, um, Jeter chose uh, the Victorian era. Um, it looks like uh, other, like the series was scrapped. Uh, it didn't end up forming into. But it looks like uh, at least two other books sort of came out of um, this proposal. Uh, I haven't read either, but uh, uh, one of them is uh, Tim Powers again. Um, the uh, the drawing in the dark, uh, which is set in Venice in the 1500s, and uh, another one called Blake's Progress by uh, Ray Faraday Nelson, uh, which seems to be about William Blake, uh, the uh, uh, historical figure, and uh, being recruited into a time war of some sort. And this one seems to have been reissued at some point under the title Time Quest. So that one also involves time travel. Yeah. Um, and I think King Arthur, I, I, the first one definitely does. I'm not sure about the second. Huh? Like, I mean, they've but, got, uh, th 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 these were both published, these books though, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it looks like the latter, uh, Blake's, uh, progress is hard to come by. I don't think there's like a in print version. Um, drawing in the dark is, uh, available, but I haven't read it. That one, um, according to the Wikipedia for that one does have King Arthur in it. So. Um, yeah. So are you saying that the Blake's progress, they might have been, like when the series was scrapped, maybe they rewrote it to not feature King Arthur anymore, or? I don't know. that It just it just lists this in um, a thing that says that came out of this series sort of thing. Like, th this book resulted from this proposal. So I don't know how much um, the final product uh, reflects it. Right. Yeah. Well, if the series was scrapped, he might. Uh, I could buy that he the, he might have rewritten it. And and it's funny that he brings in the time travel element, which kind of to me suggests that uh, this book did get. He read this book and went, "Oh, I want to <laughs> do something like that." I don't know uh, because King Arthur. I mean, it is about since the idea was that King Arthur is constantly getting reincarnated. There's a sort of time travel, but this literally has the time machine from yeah. You know, 
uh, from the, the Time Machine by H.G. Wells. Um, and um, it's uh, so that that makes it seem like a bit less of an insane swerve that it becomes about King Arthur when you understand it's like the continuing adventures of King Arthur, basically. Yeah, the the uh, the outro of the book uh, uh, suggested that uh, the uh, a possible connection to the time machine and King Arthur is um, Mark Twain's uh, Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, right. which involves time travel in King Arthur. So, um, and that's like one of the big. Uh, the other big sort of time travel story of the uh, uh, late 1800s. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting, and it, it's um, yeah, it's it's uh, it, that that is a recurring uh, well, maybe not a recurring thing, but I we've definitely seen things like that with uh, King Arthur. Both uh, the idea of you know doing a sequel to the Time Machine and uh, you know King Arthur coming back to fight at a at a time at, a, at when he's needed um, has be, been a bit of a recurring thing in genre fiction for a while, but this is 79. So I'd say it's one of the earlier adopters of that. Not, which is not to say like Arthurian, like King Arthur uh, and Arthurian fiction was big in the sixties and seventies uh, just because of, especially in Britain, uh, partly because of sort of the uh, resurgence of the fantasy genre and people like um, C.S. Lewis being popular. Um, I know the Dark is Rising books uh, are tied into uh, Arthurian legend. Uh, I think that's And of around... course, uh, Once in Future King, which also has right. a slight time travel element with Merlin aging backwards and like, right. remembering the future. Well, yeah, and then and yeah, I was going to mention the Once in Future King series, uh, which is the Sword in the Stone and the sequels. Um, the, uh, the, there's also, there is specific time travel uh, in, in the second book. I've only read the first two books. Uh, the two or three of them but i know that uh, at one point they joke about how um is it more gauze uh, or one of the or i think it's more gauze um she she gets uh like beauty magazines from the future basically <laughs> like because it's you know it's kind of a satirical story um but yeah there's it, time travel is, is sort of merlin jumps around in time in those books too so that's kind of tied up and there's also uh, camelot 3000 uh by right. uh, mike w Barr, uh which it almost makes me wonder if, which is a comic book, to be clear. Yeah, that's a that's know. a DC uh, mini series that was published in or maxi series as they called it, uh, which was published in the wake of Watchmen. Actually, they they did a few of those that were standalone, twelve or otherwise multi book series, um, and and it's actually become a thing in DC comics that uh, Camelot is a uh, thing that repeats itself throughout history. Right. So like that explains why there was like you know, uh, what, you know, the closest thing we'd have to Camelot in an historical setting, you know, is sixth century, you know, um, barbarian chieftain fighting against the Romans or whatever. Um, and then also a medieval Camelot. And, um, according to, uh, I think it was first used in, um, uh, seven soldiers, the Grant Morrison, um, uh, series. I, I don't know what you would call it. It's not quite a mini series. Yeah. Like a maxi series. Thingy. Uber, yeah, Uber, hyper um, series because it uses hyper time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, it has it. So um, all these are uh, like a racial memory of a pre-human Camelot. So like a uh, Elric style, you know, like pre-human civilization that was so great that it uh, reverberates throughout time. Right. 
yeah, his his version of and that's just a way of uh, you know uh, integrating all the different versions of Camelot we've seen in the DC universe, obviously. Like uh, yeah, but, yeah, but I I think it's a really clever idea, and it um, also makes Camelot three thousand possible. Right, <laughs> exactly. You think about it. Yeah, well, it wasn't even meant to be. I don't think they really particularly cared about putting it in the DC universe continuity when they first published it. No, no, but I'm just. But of course, yeah. everything because nerds, everything has to be in yeah. the same continuity eventually. Um, so yeah, just like Watchmen eventually I mean, went into the same continuity yeah. as DC Universe, even though it was, yeah. yeah, but, um, yeah, Camelot 3000 definitely feels a bit like, uh, Barr was getting a bit of inspiration from this, um, this book actually, uh, like it, it feels like he was nodding to the same basic idea and actually Camelot 3000 arguably does a bit more with the premise um that's one of the things about this book it's kind of interesting that it's very very fast paced and very short um yes i it's got it just throws out ideas and it doesn't really dwell on them mm -hmm. like the main character edwin hawker is is a, one of the people if you know the time machine um it's presented as a like basically a presentation that the titular character who's never given a name although it's often interpreted to be hg wells a fictionalized version of hg wells but in this book it's not hg wells is one of the people he talks to who records it and publishes the book uh the traveler is just uh, a never named scientist basically um but in uh, hawker was also there and he he heard the time travel speaking and so was merlin who was going by the name dr ambrose and who is like uh um in the once and future king merlin is this immortal guy who lives through the centuries and keeps uh tweaking events in this case you know guiding uh arthur whenever he gets reborn and reincarnated and he has to be sort of led towards excalibur and when he finds excalibur he remembers all of his past lives and his mission to help england and everything um and um so you know hawker kind of walks away from this going oh, this is all completely ridiculous this guy may need may need help uh and then almost immediately he's then thrown uh forward in time to see the results of the morlock invasion uh do you remember exactly how f that was a that was like what a couple uh, like a like the modern era that he gets thrown back to except i don't think it's name i don't think the era is named specifically but it yeah it was through um uh uh, Dr. Ambrose is giving him some uh, um, tobacco to smoke, and it turns out it wasn't tobacco. It was wacky tobacco, wow. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it throws him forward in time uh, to what may be our present, or might only be... I mean, it, the... I had interpreted it as just a few years in the future, like still Victorian era, but I mean, I could be wrong. Well, it's, it's interesting because he meets a, a TAFE there, who is the sort of second lead character a, a woman uh and he kind of talks about her being like different enough from him that i feel like that's meant to be another era and time um because like she's dressed as a man for a lot of the book and she's like a, a soldier and she fights and everything and yeah but also there's been a war that didn't happen in reality yeah so. that's the yeah it's, it, it, it you don't want it, to it's a bit weird if the morlock invasion took uh, you know, a century, except, I, get, I mean, but again, it was the humans were holding out for literally, you know, the sake of the human race, essentially, against the Morlocks. Uh, so you uh, you have to wonder, yeah, it's, it's a little unclear. I would interpret that as being a couple, like a decade or so in the future, at least, 
because it like a couple decades. So, you know, if you get to the Edwardian or even like the twenties, it's a little more, for a while it was probably seen a little less weird for a woman to dress up and, and uh, in a man's clothes and, and especially if there's a war on and it's, it's desperate and the defense of the city is needed. But I I would, her, her mode of speaking too, isn't Victorian. If you notice, she has a much more modern way of speaking. Um, yeah, again, I interpreted that as because she grew up in a war-like situation. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I, it, it's a little like you, you can't you can't apply her universe to the mm-hmm. rules of our real world because we didn't grow up being exterminated by Morlocks. <laughs> right, exactly. But it, but as you say, I mean, it kind of implies she's been at it all her life and everything. So yeah. Um. Uh, so I I, I fear I I would have thought like twenty years at the most. Like I thought she was fairly young in the story. Yeah. So. She's pretty young too, as well. Uh, but yeah, so it's 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 left a little bit confusingly vague. Uh, but he does see a near future in which the Morlocks have almost triumphs. Uh, he and Tafe uh, meet up, uh, like they 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 fight their way through London for a bit. Uh, we see sort of the last ditch stand of the human resistance uh, falling to the Morlocks. Doctor Ambrose shows up. Doctor Ambrose can apparently travel through time, even though. Uh, time like the the limits of time travel become a bit of a big deal uh, in the story, but I guess that you know he has he has a bit more freedom to travel. Um, and uh, they go uh, then they see the far future, which London is just completely paved over, and it's a it's a it's a wasteland with just grass and weeds growing all over everything, and everything's a ruin. And this is specifically because. Uh... The Morlocks' actions are literally unraveling the, the uh, time, so yeah. it just um, uh, it just blacks everything out. So London basically never existed. Well, it's, it, it yeah, it's 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 vague on that because he does talk about seeing the ruins of London overgrown, but then Doctor Ambrose, like you say, it suggests yeah, this is going to actually break time so that nothing ever happens. It's all going to collapse into a or it's going to be overwhelmed by what he calls the Sea of Time. Uh, and it's all going to disappear into the black sea of time, and essentially reality is going to be unmade. But apparently, not at this particular point in the future where we see the results of everything that happened. It's going to wipe out the Morlocks along with everyone else. Um, so it's it's clearly a, a a bad move. As always, you have to sort of say, well, wait a minute. Then why does why do the Morlocks or the the Morden, who's the evil? Uh, the evil sorcerer who's behind all this, why does he want to do this? <laughs> it's going to destroy uh, all of civilization. Did, did, did I miss something on like why his, what his motives were for wanting to do that? Um, I think for the Morlocks, it was like a manifest destiny thing that, that, uh, cause Morlocks, even in the original novel are, are like a parody of like the upper or like the, uh, the capitalist class. Um, or no, no, are sorry. They? The, the other way around. Yeah. No, no, sorry. I, was saying it the other way around. They're they're the workers, so mm-hmm. I don't know how it works. <laughs> well, um, no, you're right about the manifest destiny. Like the Morlocks are basically saying, yeah, we need to be in charge, not the you know under semi. I guess you can see where they got there from the events of the time machine, in which they you know secretly. Uh, I think they're implied to actually keep the machines of the far future running to a degree, yeah. right? But they live underground and they pop up to eat the Eloi, who are the descendants of the the upper classes. Um, who they uh, who they breed as cattle. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, so, like, the Morlocks really are starting to run things, although the Morlocks are also savage and, you know, unintelligent in their own way. Um, this book posits 
like a, an intelligent class of Morlocks who are more sophisticated and able to organize them into a, an army. Yeah, referred to as the generals. Right. And um, Dr. Uh, uh, Nela is is the guy we, we meet. Um, uh, but he... Um, I think that that's slightly implied in the book, but I don't think they get into it very much. The original H.G. Wells book, I mean. Yeah, it's, um, it's been a while since I read it, but uh, yeah, yeah I, I got the feeling we were only seeing like a fraction of their culture. Yeah. Or... Speaking of our culture, now for a word from our sponsors. Hello, fans. As part of the HyperX Podcast Network, we're letting you know that this year is HyperX's 20th birthday. To celebrate, they're offering some great deals on their award-winning gaming gear. If you're in the market for a new headset, a new microphone, blue light blocking eyewear, or any number of other high-quality HyperX products, head on over to HyperX20.com to check out all the birthday deals. Once again, check out the HyperX 20th birthday sale over at HyperX20.com or HyperX.com. Come on in, take a seat. What are you having? Well, of course I've heard of Hair at the Dogcast. That's the podcast that talks about video games and beer. For all of the latest gaming headlines, craft beer reviews, retro games, modern games, series retrospectives, console studies, and on occasion, extremely hungover discussions on the lore of Kingdom Hearts, make sure to check out Hair of the Dogcast, part of the HyperX Podcast Network. Because sure. the whole the whole thing's kind of a class warfare metaphor, so it makes sense that there would yeah. be a. You I got know, it backwards uh, earlier. Sorry about that. Yeah, it's it's like um, the the idea is uh, the classes would eventually separate for so long they'd be they'd speciate and become two separate species. Yeah. So um, given that, but you can see how the Morlocks kind of started to think, you know, oh yeah, we've got to run run everything. I mean, that's not a stretch based on putting aside the metaphor. Although I guess there's stuff to delve into if you want to keep looking at it as a class metaphor, um, in which case it becomes kind of like, don't let the working class get out of control or they'll destroy time, I guess. Uh, but the Morlocks are monsters, obviously. They're, they're always been monsters. Um, and, um, and, you know, brutal idiots, as I say. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the original story was written by a socialist, so he was, but he was obviously sort of... Um, like the the book's not didactic in that way. Like it's not a yeah. straight up like you would expect a, a socialist to write a story where the workers are good and the, you know mm -hmm. the upper classes are evil. But it's sort of the other way around. And obviously he's like playing at some mm -hmm. um, playing at expectations and stuff. Well, you know, I I was thinking about that because uh, if you remember the island of Doctor Moreau, uh, initially he wrote it with Moreau being the good guy and the whole idea of you know. Yeah, uh, operating on the the animals to make them more intelligent was was seen as something of a good thing. I'm not totally clear on what yeah, his original he, intentions he was, were. He was a eugenicist as well, right. so yeah. And 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 the fact that um and but so basically, I, from what I understand, his editor made him change it and said, yeah, no, this this is weird. If he's the if he's a good guy, if he's playing, if he's meddling in God's domain, <laughs> he can't be allowed to succeed and be a hero. So he changed it basically uh, on the the say so of his editor, and and the result is quite different. So you know, you wonder if that had an impact on the time machine as well. Like okay. maybe he's willing to just say, 
Yeah, like, because the real point, it seems to me, of the time machine is not so much like, well, these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. It's if we let ourselves continue separating these two classes out and making them so strongly differentiated, we'll end up with neither class able to support itself. And in a, like, it, it's still an argument against, you know, oppression of the low and lower classes, even if the lower classes end up as monsters. Yeah. It's like, so because it's sort you, of, um, um, be careful what you're doing or else this will happen to you. Uh, right. To the, to the upper classes sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's saying like, this isn't good for anyone, this situation, if it's allowed to continue, we have to do something to, you know, come up with a new way of, of, of doing it. So that makes perfect sense in that I regard. Just, just realized it's literally eat the rich with the Morlocks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yes, it is. <laughs> Before anyone, maybe that's where they came up with that saying. I don't know. But uh, I mean, as you say, like the, by that point, the Eloi aren't, you know, they're cattle, right? They don't yeah. really own anything. They just, li they just happen to live on the up upstairs uh, in the upper world. But, um, but so, yeah, I mean, so I don't, if, if we're going to read a class metaphors into Morlock Knight, then as I say, it kind of comes off as like, well, don't let the, don't let the, uh, the, the working class get too out of control. But I think, I mean, it's just, it's just more of a, you know, well, there, the Morlocks there are handy sci-fi monsters. Yeah. You know? Yeah. In the, in this case, I think there's less of a, a social commentary aspect, though it is there a little bit with the decoy Arthur that, uh, that, uh, Dr. Ambrose sets up to, um, uh, send Hawk, Hawk, make Hawker not, er, sort of as a decoy both for Merdan and Hawker before he's ready to assume his role as Arthur. Um, right. Uh, there's a decoy Arthur who is an old, um, an old army guy, um, who, um, uh, according, it was like play act pretending to be, uh, have the memories of Arthur. Um, and he says he's, um, depressed at, um, the way, um, Britain has, um, sort of, given up its uh, uh, morals and is, you know, invading every country and uh, there's the huge disparity between the rich and poor. And so it is discussed a bit, at least from uh, from that character's point of view. Yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it definitely does. Uh, like the, the main character of Hawker is a Victorian gentleman. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, he's going to have a certain way of viewing things and, um, his take is, you know, it. There, there's definitely a sense of, you know, you can argue built into the Arthurian mythos. There's a bit of a weird, uh, again, it, it, it's a, it's a mystical, just rationalization of British class and nobility, right? Like it's about, yeah, oh, the true king will rise, and our, and literally the king makes the land whole and heals everything. Yeah, um, and the, and they. Um, the whole Fisher King thing with like the, the land is the king um, or the king is the, you know, like the health of the king matches the health of the land. Um, but there's also uh, Arthurian myth also um, in there's some tension there because there's also the idea of the round table. That they're, yeah, they're I was just going to say each other and uh, the idea of like ideas of chivalry is like the, the knights have a duty to the lower classes, um, mm -hmm. which. Yeah, is, it's. Uh, yeah. I was going to say, like, it's, it's, it kind of contains both. Uh, the, the, the round table is about, and there's definitely a, a, a subtext of equality and, 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 uh, like the king's duty to everyone else as well. And that there's a code very, very strong on the idea of a code that the, the knights and, and Arthur himself have to follow, which is a lot of which is don't 
you know, cheat on your wife, uh, but or don't cheat on de- cheat on somebody else's <laughs> cheat on somebody else's wife. You're um, subtweeting Lancelot here, but uh... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's not. It's not just as as much as Arthur is where we get the sort of chosen one, destined bloodline um, theme from that shows up in a lot of genre fiction and fantasy. Uh, it there's a lot of stuff there that kind of counterbalances it as well. Um, yeah, so and it, also also the idea of peacemaking. Like obviously Arthur fights a lot, but uh, mm-hmm. he doesn't like seek out war, and he'll make peace with his enemies and turn enemies into friends, and that's a big part of. At least right. a lot of interpretations of it. Yeah, that's in the again the ones in Future King, especially the final book. Uh, and as I, I think you're quoting um, the kid who would be king when yeah. you said that, right? Yeah, <laughs> which was a movie nobody but, I mean, saw recently, but yeah, it does it mention that. Yeah, no, it was a uh, good movie, but it yeah it brings up the fact that Arthur's big strength at the time was that he was a uniter. Uh, at the time when uh, historically the Roman Empire was withdrawing, so uh, you know. Uh, England was maybe falling into possible barbarianism again, and he was like again, in as much as there was any historical figure, which there probably wasn't. But he represents a desire to sort of reunify England and have you know an end to war that was the the, the, the fractious disputes that were starting to to, to happen. Yeah, the wording was from that movie, but I mean it's a common thing in Arthurian right. adaptations. Like I recently watched uh, the musical Camelot movie, which was actually pretty good. Uh, it doesn't have a good reputation, but I thought it was actually pretty good. But it, it had that aspect as well. Yeah, yeah. That's that's almost generally like as as much as he's also like the noble king is born to rule. You see why Arthur is the noble king is born to rule. And in fact, going back to this book, it it kind of makes a big thing out of well, the Ar- Arthur will revive and 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 uh, defeat our enemies. But it's not about defeating our enemies. It's it's about like he has to rule justly and uni- unite the kingdom in peace and, and goodness and prosperity. Like that is a big part of the Arthurian mythos. So he has to kind of earn it. He's not, it's not just, he can, he can, you know, kick everyone's butt. And that is, that is a, like, it, it does get no, a little uncomfortable. Too. Yeah, no, he does that too. Obviously he defeats, but it's, it's, it's not usually framed as like, Oh, there's a capital E enemy that Arthur has to defeat. As you see in the later, like I say, that's in Camelot 3000 as well. in this one, it's much more about like it will unite the kingdom essentially, which is a, a recurring thing. It's not just in uh, Arthurian uh, legend; it does pop up in a number of different um, mythos throughout Northern England as well. I think there's a German and a French equivalent of that as well. Um, and Charlemagne is, in some ways, you know, he was a historical figure, but he he adopted a lot of the uh, Arthurian mythos. And then, of course, you get a little uncomfortable because then you start to have, you know fascists who <laughs> who yeah. take that idea and, and run with it essentially but it's 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 the ultimate sort of um fascist uh longing for a, a golden age that can come again if the if the great leader who embodies the spirit of the world can you know be rich like that was all used by fascists you know especially hitler that's yeah. the mystical side of fascism um, which is again the the world is in, the land is embodied in one man who will lead us to victory. I, yeah. I, as always, it's a misunderstanding and a simplification. I, I remember how Tolkien was really ang- like he was angrier at Hitler doing that than he was at some of the atrocities Hitler did because he well, said they Hitler didn't just know missed about the point. Some of them at this time, but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, 
but yeah, he was really angry that Hitler, you know, messed around with the mythos, which he had spent his life studying, basically, that he didn't get it. And he was using it to, to whip people up into a frenzy over that stuff. Yeah. And in, in modern extent, like, the, uh, um, say, the Lion King, um, mm-hmm. uh, the, the idea of, um, again, the, the um, Scar's a bad king. So when he's in charge, the land itself literally goes to crap. And uh, right. Um, I think the live action movie tried to like explain that, but like, it's not, it's not a rational. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, that's the, yeah. A, a different lion being in charge of the pack isn't actually going to change the landscape, but you know, it does in the movie because that's it, yeah. what it represents. Right. I mean, they sort of imply that like the animals move out of their like natural, uh, roles, like their, their, which is, issue in itself but like he lets the the hyenas kind of run riot and scavenge everywhere instead of yeah you know, uh, restraining there's a mild environmentalism thing going on but yeah yeah the live action one had a uh, i've only seen reviews of it so uh, i could be wrong it could be a great movie but it doesn't look like it but it has no. a thing where uh in according to the movie a hyena's belly is never full so if you just allow them to eat all the time they'll never stop eating oh <laughs> Well, yeah, it's that. It, it's clearly. I mean, it's difficult to make an environmental me- metaphor when every character is an animal yeah. who can't really mess with nature as badly as all that. But anyway, but like it, I said, things it, are it, it, trying to think about it too logically makes the movie have some not only fall apart but have some unfortunate implications. But that's not what hmm. it's trying to do. So yeah, of course. But it yeah, like that is of course the the especially Celtic idea of the land being bound to the king. Uh, which is, as you say, it's it's interesting because it contains within itself both some really terrible implications, but also, you know, positive implications of, well, the king is supposed to be the steward of the land. And, you know, and, and there's a there's a responsibility that goes with it. Plus, of course, when you have the pagan ideology of, of uh, Arthur, it's, you know, it's not really about morality. It's not like, oh, it, this works because he's a it gets complicated because the Arthurian mythos is a a pagan mythos that was Christianized later uh, by turning them into knights and kings and before they'd been, you know, gods and and demigods. Um, But the the whole idea of giving them a morality has always fit a bit uneasily in the Arthurian uh, mythos because it's not about like moral instructions. It's just like, this is what happens. The king is when the king is good, the land thrives. When the king is bad, the land rots. But he's still the king. Um, and then, in, you know, the later writers, the Christian writers, give it a bit more, a uh, bit more of a. Oh, it's because he cheated on his wife, or because, I, well, he didn't cheat on his wife. It's no, because no, somebody it's... cheated on him. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how you draw a moral lesson from that, really, uh, <laughs> in terms of what Arthur did. Uh, well, but, it yeah. depends on the interpretation. Like I said, the musical yeah. Camelot one has like him going to great lengths to. Because he doesn't want to um, upset his wife or the man, his best friend, who his wife is cheating on. He knows, by the way, in that version. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but um, he he keeps making excuses for them and uh, um, right. letting people um, um, do like duels over, you know, fighting over whether it's happening, and like that's what causes the kingdom to go in ruin because all the knights sort of leave because. You know, this thing is happening that everybody knows about that Arthur refuses to publicly acknowledge. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a take. And and that was apparently a big thing, uh, not so much in the actual Arthurian era, but uh, the later era that uh, people like um, uh, 
the Morte d'Arthur were, were describing. Like, of course, it was being retroactively transposed into a, you know, a mythos of how you were supposed to act as a knight, how chivalry was supposed to function. And, and there was this idea of courtly love, which is kind of, you know, you have a lady that you're supposed to be working on behalf of who could literally be the queen or a noble lady who wasn't your wife or your lover in any case. It was just, you know, the, 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 your Lord's lady was someone you were supposed to serve essentially. Uh, and Lancelot takes it too far. That was explicitly what they were investigating in, um, in some of those uh, later Arthurian adaptations, right? Like it was, it was being filtered through that. It was sort of serve your lady, but don't get, don't get too close to her don't, basically. Don't, right? Don't serve her in that way. Um, yeah right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, uh, it's Arthurian stuff really interests me because there's no like canon for it per se. There's like a number of because it's all just fan fiction writers writing fan fiction <laughs> about other fan fiction. You know. Like, yeah exactly. Like yeah. if you go back far enough, it doesn't resemble you know what we would think of as Arthurian legend. Um, it, it's all just you know writers coming up with stuff and other writers building on that. And I I, right. I like that aspect. Like. Key parts like Lancelot came from the French, you know. Um, mm-hmm. um, Galahad was like a total Mary Sue, got inserted really late into the game, and mm-hmm. then became the most important character. <laughs> right. Well, it's it's it, not only was uh, it that uh, Percival finds the Grail in some versions. I believe even Gawain is thought to have found the grail in some earlier versions. Like they keep introducing like knights who are better. And then the next guy's like, no, my knight's even better than your knight. And then the next guy, no, no, mine's even better than that guy. Yeah. It's all people like, yeah. um, Really uh, folk and different like uh, cultures that uh, focused on, like I said, the French were big into the Lancelot stuff and um, yeah. um, Different areas focused on different aspects. I don't know. The whole thing's just fascinating. Yeah. Well, and that's like, I, I'm, it's not a blind spot because I know a fair bit about it, but I, it's one of those things that I'm planning on going into when we when we take our next break, like really delve into like some Arthurian lore, you know, like actually read Mallory and stuff. Yeah, the, the, it, it's also I mean, and you can see like this is a little more modern, but you can see it because we have a lot more of the sources, and plus there's question mark a historical basis for it uh very very shaky <laughs> yeah. but still it does it does exist um like there's there might have been a guy who maybe kind of inspired it um but you can see it like that's how mythology tends to work in general like greek myth is the same way i mean uh all the versions of greek myth we have are kind of are already like fanfic of existing earlier stories homer's like one of the oldest and he's still doing a fanfic retelling of characters yeah. and then you have the later people like um like uh, Euripides and so on, who are taking Greek myth and the Trojan War and so forth, and adding to it and or changing it or fanficking it, as we say, and and of course folk, you know, all the folk tale that we've folklore that we've had over the years is the same thing. So it's it, that just is seems to be how mythology and folklore works. It builds up in that way over yeah. the years by people. I just find it interesting it. with uh, yeah. with the Arthurian stuff because like the the writers who were doing it weren't saying this is true; they were writing mm-hmm. fiction. Um, like nobody. Who like we know who came up with Camelot uh, with um sorry with uh, Lancelot, like we know who created that character. I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but uh, um uh, was it, just, it Detroyes? Detroyes? Yeah, yeah. So I think yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, it's just funny, you know, and that's like a key part of Arthurian legend now. Like you can't really do Arthur without. I mean, you can, but you know, mm-hmm. um, it feels right. incomplete. At least doing Arthur's whole story without Lancelot involved. Um, right. 
I, I find it funny. Well, like uh, you yeah. see uh, movies like uh, what the King Arthur from uh, 2004, where he's a Roman general, um, where they're saying this is the true story of Arthur. And, you know, it starts off at the beginning, you know, uh, but Lancelot's in it. Yeah, um, right. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's yeah. very funny. I don't know. Uh, it's a it's a rich tapestry uh, of of ideas, and you know it's cool how people keep going back to it. Um, in and I mean, in, the, in a King sense, Arthur that's a land of contrasts. Yeah, uh, it's <laughs> it, but it's interesting. I mean, in the, in a way, that's what this is, and this is doing it with Arthur, and it's also doing it with the time machine. Who, as we've 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 done at least what two different books so far that have used H.G. Wells and been like unofficial sequels to H.G. Wells, or sorry, not sorry, not necessarily Wells, it was uh, Saturn and Fernandul is a sequel to Jules Verne, not yeah, H.G. Wells. Yeah, but also, um, I mean, there there are uh, lots of unofficial sequels to H.G. Wells, like uh, um, Edison's Conquest of Mars, which uh, like came out a few years after War of the Worlds and is a right, sequel. Right, as we've said. Um, yep. Uh, very like missing the point sequel, but you know whatever. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. yeah um, exactly. And it, it shows you how there's the same tendency to just fanfic it, and maybe people will retroactively go back and add that into the story. You know, that's a thing. Uh, you even see that when there's movie adaptations sometimes that like riff on a story so effectively that people don't. You know, they if they go back and read the original, they're kind of disappointed. Uh, yeah, you know, like like we were talking about the time machine on a previous episode. Sorry, I keep bringing this up, but I find it funny. And you mentioned the moon thing, which is from one of the movies. <laughs> and it is funny that actually that that whole idea of the moon blowing up and creating, you know, cataclysms on Earth shows up in a couple of the other things we've talked about, which include um, uh, Last and First Men. It's not the moon blowing up, but it's similar. It's the idea of the moon falling, starting to fall out of orbit and affecting the Earth's tides and uh, that being the basis for a future cataclysm. So it's almost like they went back and edited that into the time machine uh, when they did it in the movie. Um, but yeah, like clearly, you know, you, you, you take these ideas and they all kind of boil together. But I think, I think the time machine invites it because the narrator doesn't have a name and yeah. it's so easily, <laughs> it's so easily like uh, dropped into whatever you want it to, to be. And it's very easy to make sequels to it, of course. Yeah. Like, uh, and a lot the of, a lot of them the uh, make it just straight up H.G. Wells. Like you mentioned, like uh, the um, time after time. And it was even um, H.G. Wells was a recurring character on Lois and Clark, the 90s Superman show. Um, <laughs> yeah. Who, uh, right. Like he kept, well, they were fighting a, a future dictator named Tempest. And like, he kept coming back and, and helping Lois okay. and Clark fight Tempest. I yeah, that's exactly, you know, he turned him more, more than other, I mean, as we, we, we've always seen this tendency to, you know, take famous artists, uh, authors and make them, you know, have the adventures that they wrote about. But again, Wells kind of invites it more than others because he made the time machine, uh, uh the, the narrator of the time machine sound like he was writing about himself to a certain extent. So people uh, people draw that from it, you know. People do it with Lovecraft and so on, but with Wells, it's literally like, well, maybe he's the lead character of the time travel, yeah. the time machine. Uh, so this book also has Atlantis in it. Uh, sort of, <laughs> very briefly, <laughs> I, but yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, so um, uh, an aspect that I, I really was uh, excited about when they introduced it, but they didn't really do it is. Uh, the idea that Excalibur has been taken from different time periods, and when multiple Excaliburs exist in the same time period, then they're, they're, uh, the original Excalibur becomes weakened because the powers sort of spread out between them. 
So they have to collect all the uh, Excaliburs that uh, the evil wizard Merden brought into the brought into the present. I like that collect them all thing, but they just sort of end up finding them all together. Um, yeah. So I mean, yeah, I that is the, that is clever. The idea that because Excalibur has power, but if you bring forward a bunch of Excaliburs, the power kind of gets diluted among them. That's a, that's a neat idea for how to defeat the the power of Excalibur. It's also funny that when he does get Excalibur unified. Uh, you know, he just immediately can send an entire army of Morlocks packing. Like, there's there's very little delay. Once he gets Excalibur, it's like, story's over. It's, <laughs> like, that's it. The Morlocks are done. Yeah, got again, the, the Guy Ritchie movie where it can, like, slow down time. And, uh, yeah. Um, it's like, it just puts him on God mode. Yeah, exactly. But it's, it's, it, it, it is funny. It, it did feel like he was scrambling for the finish line at that point. It's, it's very, it's a very, like, don't pause for breath kind of story that feels like he almost didn't do any second drafts or anything. Like it feels yeah. like he really grounded out really fast, uh, yeah. which is not, not to criticize it too much, but I do feel like there are stuff, there's points where he could have maybe taken a bit more of a breath and paced himself a yeah, bit. Cause definitely. it's very short. Um, yeah. So the Atlantis good, stuff, so. um, at one point they're traveling in the sewers looking for one of the, um, uh, Excaliburs and, uh, they're looking for something called the Lost Coin World, which uh, for um, what was the fr- phrase they use? Uh, the Grand Tosh. Toshers, yeah, yeah. The Toshers all knew about that. Um, the Grand Tosh is like the the ultimate collection of like metals and coins and and things that fall into the sewer. And like apparently somewhere in the in the London sewer system, there's like just this giant priceless glob of of uh metals stuck together and it turns out that that's true and it's uh in the lost coin world uh an underground civilization um founded by uh refugees from uh the surface world from a few hundred years before and they're using atlantean technology that was left behind by (laughs) atlantean colonists in um um who inspired the celts apparently visually at least like they have celtic designs and all their stuff uh yeah. Wild. yeah he's, although Wild he's, to just he's, throw he's, that off. Yeah, he's he's very emphatic that the Celts are not the descendants of Atlantis. They just traded with Atlantis and it yeah. built up their culture, which I think is kind of a an attempt to sort of not be like racially weird, basically. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, Atlantis is often racially weird. Not not always. Like I've read some like even Victorian stuff that presented Atlanteans as brown skinned or whatever, but there's often a weird racial element to it. Mm hmm. Um, but anyway he avoids it yeah yeah um like the idea is that the Celts saw the atlanteans when they were trading with them and sort of based all their culture on atlantean culture right so they're they're not like related by blood in the slightest they just sort of um uh monkey see monkey do <laughs> right yeah well, the, well the, the atlanteans were kind of a dominant culture that probably affected things over the world was the yeah education. and uh, uh i did Sorry, go and ahead. they have they have tunnels all over the the European continent, which uh, uh, is um, connected into the London sewer system. Mm-hmm. And they had a submarine, which uh, the Morlocks commandeered. Right. Yeah. The, the, at one point, he just the Morlocks have a submarine. Oh, it's an ancient landed submarine. Well, it's yeah. sunk now. Let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the Morlocks they, do... don't know how to operate it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 uh yeah, it's really again a lot of ideas just thrown out very fast, and then we move fast, we move past it really fast into the next uh and there, the next there's, stage. There's a mummy, uh, sort of. So yeah, there's a nurse who's a who's working with Merdan, and she becomes when Merdan gets sucked into the future by uh, Ambrose. Again, a lot happens in this book. <laughs> Yeah, it probably sounds like complete gibberish to people who haven't read it. Yeah. But, uh, well, it's uh, we were talking about more um, uh, the Osiris Gates uh, with uh, which is by Jeter's contemporary Tim Powers. Uh, it has a lot of the same energy of this book of just like throwing crazy things out, and it's about time travel, and there's it, it's like going back to similar era, not quite the same era, but like and just but also there's magic and weird ancient artifacts, and also science and like it's it's the same thing i think anubis gates is a little better done because everything kind of coheres very cleverly and logically it's a little bit more clockwork whereas this is kind of like this felt like the classic pulp writing of i've got a weekend to write a book and i'm just going to grind out things i've got a lot of ideas but i'm just going to keep it going you know what i mean yeah which i sort of appreciate it has a similar energy to my comic i think like just throwing out every idea (laughs) like it all exists you know, even if it doesn't like make sense together, it all exists in the same mm-hmm. world, sort of thing. I don't know. Well, like I like I say, the prompt being, "Oh, King Arthur keeps getting reincarnated, and it's one of a series of adventures." Has it make a little bit more sense in retrospect? Like that that makes it that grounds it a little bit more because it's like one episode of a TV show, basically. Yeah. Um. That, you know, you don't need to explain the premise of the TV show every time. Even though the yeah. other episodes didn't really get made, that, it, that <laughs> the fact that that's what it was intended as. So. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, uh, you yes. at least get it. So Morden gets sucked into the future by uh, Dr. Ambrose to take him out of the... Um, uh, from interfering with things further. Um, and then this woman who was working with Morden, who we never learned the identity of, becomes the main villain. And she's in the far future. She's been burned and she's wrapped up like a mummy. Um, so uh, who is this person? I don't know. She could be more... Morgan Le Fay, she could be, she could be anyone. Hmm. It's just weird that this yeah. becomes our main villain in the last couple yeah. chapters. Yeah, I, I don't think she's anyone special. I think she was like a henchman who basically saw the boss left and went, oh, okay, now I'm in charge. But also she was swearing vengeance because she got uh, burned by uh, by Hawker and, and the heroes. Um, which is, it, it is very much abrupt and, you know, you know, they kind of pulled it out of their butt <laughs> just to yeah, have a villain I, because I Morden's out of the off the picture. Yeah, I wish she was a named character. You know, <laughs> like she, mm-hmm. she, like you should give a name to even if your secondary main villain. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the, but, this book is really interesting. I do recommend it, but it's it's weird. Yeah. Yep. Okay, I think we're... Oh, and one other thing I wanted to mention that I found kind of interesting was um, this is the after um, uh, the uh, uh, pr- uh, Frankenstein Unbound. This is another book that ends with them going to the to a, a Arctic, like a very cold, frozen wasteland in the far future and for the final battle, which is kind of an interesting... That seems to be... That makes it feel more gothic. I think it kind of ties it with the gothic... Uh, the the idea of gothic uh, Victorian era f- sci-fi <laughs> that seems to be a a, a re- recurring premise of the far future being a frozen wasteland, which is kind of interesting. Oh, uh, there is actually something else I wanted to talk about. 
we mentioned earlier there was a little bit interrogation of uh, an interrogation of uh, Victorian values with uh, the uh, decoy Arthur talking about how you know the class structure is really um, um, unfair and you know the way England is um, steamrolling over the world is is uh, horrifying. But at the same time, we get a little bit of uh, weird East versus West style Orientalism with um, the idea that uh, Merdan, who's the evil Merlin, who looks exactly like Merlin for some reason, we don't learn who he is either, but he was apparently the advisor of Suleiman, and he's like the Eastern version of like fighting against the West, and England represents all the great values of the West, and I don't know, that's mm -hmm. a little uncomfortable. Yeah, there's, there's, you have to take it as given that like, England is, and again, it makes sense because Hawker is a Victorian era Englishman. He's going to yeah, have a positive was, thought. Merlin, Merlin saying this. Yeah, yeah, but it's, it's, um, yeah, like the characters. Well, even Merlin would probably think well of England because he helped sort of build it in the first place. But you know, it's, it, it yeah, it, it. There's an implicate. There's the implied sort of. Well, the if England is going to win, then it, they're the good guys. You know, <laughs> not not that they come into contact with other cultures, but it's the sort of well. Yeah, it's of part course, of the Victorian England that, are the good guys. Yeah, yeah. start of the backstory that uh, Arthur apparently fought against Suleiman and stuff. Um, yeah, in right. at least some of his lives, um, fought yeah. against you know well, that's, uh, sultans that, and stuff. I mentioned Charlemagne, and that kind of makes. sense. I don't know if this is specifically the guy Charlemagne fought, but he did fight off uh, the Moorish invasions of England of Europe, and you know that's something that gets uh, referenced again. So I mean that makes a certain amount of yeah, sense. Yeah, but the idea of like the, the East is like an evil empire compared to the goodness right. of England or yeah. you know Europe. You know it's. Yeah. Uh, it's, no, it's not. It's, not it's, neither was the good guys, but you know, it's it's operating. I didn't I didn't read it as like oh the evil Orient necessarily, but it definitely built out of the assumption that like well Europe must be protected against the you know like that was just kind of that, taken that as a England given. England represents the values of the West and that's sort of yeah, yeah yeah. I think exactly. Merlin said that at one point. So yeah, and Merlin's supposed to be like an an old wise character in this. Like he's not a villain. He, he he has some sinister vibes, but I, I think I think he's supposed to be a good guy, like straight up. Yeah, well, but Merlin's always been a bit of a weird little figure. Like he's always been a little bit morally dubious. He he pulls strings and he kind of uh, yeah. he's the power behind the throne. So he's I not. Mean, he's uh, he's definitely know. dubious in the uh, Excalibur movie. The Borman yeah, movie. exactly. Um, yeah, you know, and, and like even in I believe that's actually from one of the one of the original myths that he. Um, he uh, magically disguises Uther as another man so that Uther can rape a woman. Um, yeah. Well, again, like that, that's going back to more pagans not... Yeah. Like, the moral is not... There's no morality there. It's just this yeah. is what happens. But you know, uh, with Excalibur, like it works as, like, you know, the, the repeating, um, you know, generational uh, sins passed on to the son, you know, that Arthur's born in a, in a moment of... Um, um, just reckless evil and selfishness. Um, yeah, I, and he tries I, I to don't... rise above it, but like it comes back to haunt him at the end of his life. You know that that's yeah. I don't. I've never interpreted it that like that. That's like Arthur's born that way because he's a good king for a long time, and it's more something else that happens. Uh, I, know, I mean, I, in the in the Excalibur movie specifically. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, yeah, I guess I guess there are ways you can interpret it that way. So. Fair enough. I I don't know. Like it, Arthur's a good guy in that, but like he, there's, um, I don't know. The 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 sword in the movie isn't quite as 
uh, happy a, a symbol as it is in a lot of other versions. Because, I mean, obviously a lot of Borman was originally going to do, or not originally, but he started off with an Arthur movie, then he uh, turned it into a Lord of the Rings movie, then back into an Arthur movie. Mm -hmm. So some of the ideas from the Lord of the Rings stuff sort of worked its way in. So like the sword is sort of the ring in some ways. Like it's... Um, I don't know. It's it's a really yeah. interesting movie. I would recommend uh, Excalibur a lot. Uh, if, yeah. if you take anything away from this particular podcast episode, watch 1981's Excalibur, directed by John Bourne. <laughs> yeah, probably the best uh, King Arthur movie, except possibly uh, last year's The Green Knight, which is also really good. Yeah, that, that was um, good. Anyway, okay, let's uh, let's put a pin in it if that's if we're good. Put a sword uh, in it. Put a sword in it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sorry. If you, you should have put a sword on it. Well, the time tunnel is closing. Uh, we've been master magicians, Adam Prosser and Philip Rice, locked in an endless chess game through the centuries, but which one is the evil one? Uh, our engineer and producer is the latest reincarnation of Alex Ross, and the theme song was by Jack Furick, who has a raging case of subterranean homesick blues. Uh, just a reminder, if you want to aid the resistance and stave off the Morlock invasion, we both have a Patreon, uh, which helps pay for hosting costs and whatnot, and if you subscribe to either of them, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and illustrations and comics, among other things. Uh, just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice with one L, or Adam Prosser with two S's, or NeverSleepsNetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe for the links. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast or Prankster36 for me, or Spear Hafok A for Philip. And uh, as I've mentioned a few times, uh, I'm the comics editor of HeroesLive.TV, uh, which features uh, the comics of myself and a lot of my friends. Uh, it's expanding every week. Uh, lots of cool stuff. Um, so go check it out. Uh, so until next time, watch out for strange women in pawns distributing swords, because the next one could be for you.